Welcome to the Lab Rats Podcast. You are now entering the maze. I saw a new physical therapist in Fort Wayne. I posted an Instagram on it and dude, he's so good. Like he spent so much time with me, like understanding what gives my knee pain, like what makes it better, what makes it worse. I mean, the first time I was there, he spent almost two hours with me. Oh, dang. Wow. Giving me exercises. He he showed me actually how to squat properly. And I, I can squat now. I squatted for the first time without my knee hurting. Hmm. So was it bad form? That was kind of like throwing it off yeah. before. Yeah. Right. So that he does. He's a he's a CrossFit coach, too. Right. Right. OK. Yeah. So you're like your average PT might not really know how like exercise impact your your knee but you do crossfit so this this guy is kind of like the the perfect person to see yeah yeah the name of his business is advanced therapy and performance in fort wayne indiana if you're in fort wayne check him out yeah he he just did such good work i went to him again today so wanted to get in a couple times to see him and he spent another hour hour and a half with me just working on different exercises and like it was so much better than what my other pt in charlotte gave me Mm -hmm. and you know in her defense she she's working for a big company she sees tons of people a day she only has like 30 minutes right but i felt like i got more work done in you know the couple times i saw him than than i have over the past month with my other one wow so he did that the kneeling like it's uh acupuncture and then they do east like e-stem is that what it is yeah so i did a bunch of exercises strengthening exercises which worked me so hard like he did bfr bands blood mm-hmm. flow restriction bands and it it feels like i squatted like two three hundred pounds wow after and i was just doing air squats yeah and then i did dry needling which is you stick needles these really thin needles into your like joint and it's different than acupuncture. He said acupuncture is just kind of like surface level where dry needling goes a lot deeper. And then mm. you attach this like little, I don't know, these little clips onto it and it sends electrical. Yeah, it's like east end basically you feel going it? down. Like, do, you, do you feel like the electricity going in? Oh, yeah. You can feel like the electricity like in oh. your, in the middle of your knee. Ooh. Yeah, weird. it's interesting. But uh, it did it like help. feel good or was it just kind of like a weird feeling? Yeah, it was kind of weird. It like contract it kind of like i don't know it felt like it like contracted kind of the muscles around my knee yeah the picture looked nasty it gave me some flashbacks to to getting my blood drawn i I got obviously we took it after carnivore and before dude the the blood drawing after was one of the most painful experiences ever are you serious normally it's not that bad no i'm very good with needles and I, i i can watch it go in i'm i'm very i don't get like I don't get um, queasy. I, yeah, I don't get queasy at all. But she like she poked it in, completely missed the, the vein. <laughs> she so she doesn't pull it back out. She tries to angle it oh, into the vein, dude. and like she was just working it for like probably forty seconds. And I was just like, oh, I was in so much pain. Dude, that's so bad. Like that can like <sighs> just ripping up your yeah. Veins. I was like sweating. It it hurt bad. And like I'm I'm very I have good pain tolerance. Like I can't imagine somebody. Who's who's bad with needles? I mean, they would like what do you do that, that to like an old person? Yeah. Just... Wow. So I'm uh, 
Yeah, my last interaction with needles isn't very pleasant, so it kind of gave me some flashbacks looking at that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you don't really feel it go in. Like, it doesn't no. like, make you bleed or, or it doesn't feel like a puncture at all. You don't feel okay. it until it's, like, in there. Weird. But. Um, all right, we better, uh, we better dive in or we're going to be here all night. We got a quite the episode ahead of us. Yeah, so this is the long-awaited carnivore diet episode. Well, not not the carnivore diet episode. So so this week we're breaking down basically what the carnivore diet is. Next week we're, we're gonna it's gonna be just a full episode on our experience doing this diet for thirty days. Yeah, we didn't want this to be like a two hour episode. So breaking it up, yeah, like Aaron said, we'll be talking about the carnivore diet in this episode and then our experience in the next one. Because I think that'll be fun because we did 30 days of it. And yeah, we're looking forward to talking about it. But right now, we're just going to kind of give a introduction or, or an overview of what is the carnivore diet? What's the theory behind it? And what is some of the evidence for it look like? And this isn't don't take this as necessarily an advocation of the carnivore diet. Again, what we do here is we experiment. So we're, we're just trying to and give you guys an overview of what it is. We will not be covering the ethical or environmental side of uh, the carnivore diet because I think that's something that comes up a lot anytime when you talk about meat. We do want to cover those in a future episode, but we just don't have the the time uh, to cover it here. So we're simply talking about uh, nutrition in this episode. So Aaron will get into kind of what you eat on the carnivore diet. You may have heard about it on social media or different podcasts. Uh, one of the guys that kind of popularized it was Sean Baker. Uh, Paul Saladino was another one. He was actually just on Joe Rogan. Maybe by the time this comes out, his episode will be out. But those are those are two guys that really made it popular. You know, some celebrities you may have heard of who follow it, uh, Jordan Peterson, his daughter, Michaela Peterson, both, I believe, have autoimmune conditions. Joe Rogan did a month of it. Um, many people that I've heard of who have been successful with this have had some sort of autoimmune condition or chronic illness, and they've noticed life-changing effects from this diet. So, Yeah, I haven't really heard of many people, people who had been healthy before and ate a pretty good clean diet before. Like, I haven't really heard about anybody's experience, so that's why like, it was interesting for us to do it because right. we... We come from a background with no, really no issues health-wise. We we eat well. We work out consistently. We're lean. So somebody like us doing it is kind of a something I haven't heard about. So it was an interesting experience, which we'll we'll dive into next episode. But yeah, um, yeah. This episode, what is the carnivore diet? It's like the main question people have is, what do you eat? And there's really no single definition of the carnivore diet. Uh, but really, to put it simply, it's eating only animal products. And it's in its strictest form, that would include uh, meat, mainly from ruminant animals. Uh, ruminant animals include things like cattle, uh, bison, sheep, elk. Uh, these are herbivores. And what's unique about what makes uh, them a ruminant animal is that they have four stomachs. That's what's, what's unique about them. And having four stomachs allows them to uh, break down food easier to and in that process to detoxify any harmful substances that is present in the food. It also allows a fermentation process to take place during the digestive process. Um, and this four part digestive system also allows them to be extremely effective at converting 
what they eat into energy. Uh, so, so non-ruminant animals, on the other hand, would be things like chicken and pigs um, and uh, seafood like fish. So basically the carnivore diet, the, the focus for a strict carnivore is to focus on eating ruminant animals. So lots of beef, um, yeah, lots of beef, lots of, lots of red meat. Also, it's also focusing on eating lots of variety of meats. You're not eating just the muscle meat. So you're not eating just ground beef and chicken breast. You're eating everything. No, it's called eating nose to tail. If you've heard that phrase before, that means you're eating not only muscle meat, but you're eating organs, fat, tendons, bone, um, every, yeah, really literally nose to tail, um, even tongue, uh, tail, like literally tail, um, yep. eating every part of the animal because there's so much nutrients in all of that. So, uh, I, a, a less strict carnivore diet would allow for more chicken and more pork. A, a less strict carnivore diet may allow for some dairy products like cheese and milk assuming there's been nothing added to it in addition to that. Um, and a less strict carnivore diet would also maybe allow seasonings. On, on strict carnivore, the only seasoning you can consume is salt because salt does not come from a plant, whereas every other seasoning comes from a plant. Um, but again, so th there's really just no strict definition of it. But all in all, on the car carnivore diet, you're eating only animal products, and you're not consuming any fruits, any vegetables, grains, nuts, seeds, sugar whatsoever. Just products derived from animals. That includes what you drink as well. You are essentially limited to drinking just plain water. Yeah, so this is like really probably one of the most strict diets out there. I mean, if you think yeah. of a you know, a paleo diet, I mean, paleo is kind of a vague term as well, but it's supposed to be whole foods, but you're eating meats, vegetables, nuts, seeds. Um, and you take, you think of vegan, it's pretty much anything but animal products. This is really like in its strictest form is really one food group. But what's yeah. it, like, we'll get into it later on. What's interesting is it really is a huge variety of nutrients though, despite eating essentially a single food group. Yeah, it's, it's a very, very strict elimination diet. Like when you think of yeah. elimin elimination diets, the most popular is probably the Whole30, where the, the idea is get rid of inflammatory foods and then slowly add them back after 30 days. This is this is getting rid of literally everything. You can only eat from one, one food group, so extremely restrictive. But like you said, you still get a lot of the nutrients, which we'll get into. But why would you do this? Like why, why would somebody eat only meat? Um, uh, what's what's the theory behind this? So there's really two arguments that make um, that are made for the carnivore diet. It's based upon, I guess, two beliefs. The first belief, like we said, is that animal products are the most nutrient dense food on the planet. Um, and this again is not referring to just your typical T-bone steak or chicken breast. It's referring to collectively all parts of the animal. Um, eating muscle meats and organ meats like liver, heart, pancreas, kidney, um, yeah, tongue, tail, oysters, which is a, a, a proper word for testicles, um, fat, bone marrow, ligaments, tendons, everything. It's eating nose to tail. So the first argument is that consuming a variety of different parts of the animal provides significantly more nutrients than you could ever find in a collection of fruits and veggies. Now, the second belief here, and perhaps more alarming, is that plants contain harmful toxins 
that our bodies can't uh, process. And, and the fact that um, plants can actually be harmful to us is, is a bold statement. But again, we're asking you to, to have an open mind here as we explore this topic. Um, remember, these aren't necessarily beliefs that we stand by 100%. We're simply summarizing the arguments for the carnivore diet. And when, when I read this book, uh, The Carnivore Code by Paul Saladino, I'll admit I had, I, I was very defensive kind of throughout the entire book. I was kind of uh, trying right. to, I was just, yeah, being defensive throughout the whole book. So and I did come away with some, after doing it too, for 30 days, I came away with some, some great points, but just, yeah, just keep an open mind here as we go through this. Um, we're going to first talk about the, the plant toxins since this point takes a little bit more convincing and it's a little bit more in depth. And then after that, we're going to dive into what makes animal products more nutritious than other food groups. Yeah. The idea of, of plants containing toxins is really kind of counterintuitive. We think, you know, the whole plant, it's all good for you, but like walk us through, like wh when we say toxins, what, what do we mean by that? Yeah. Like you said, I mean, for the longest time, like it, it's always, eating veggies and fruits has been associated with, with eating a clean and healthy diet. You know, they, they have vitamins and minerals in it, all sorts of beneficial compounds. Um, but yeah, they also contain bad things. They actually contain things called, called anti-nutrients. And that's basically what it sounds like. It's, it's the opposite of, of nutrition, opposite of nutrients. And this is because that plants are, these are living organisms. Um, they, they want to stay alive and they want to reproduce just like animals do, just like humans do. But humans and animals have something that plants don't. We have, we have limbs and we have teeth. Uh, we have the ability to, to fight, to run and hide, whereas plants don't. Um, but they still have to defend themselves in some type of way to prevent themselves from getting eaten by bugs and animals and, and humans too. And how they do that is through basically chemical compounds. And the fact that plants contain harmful chemicals isn't up for debate. I mean, that's that's accepted by all. What's up for debate is which of those plants and to what extent our bodies can actually tolerate. You know, right. everybody knows that there's plants out there that are toxic enough to, toxic enough to kill humans if we eat them. Uh, an example of this is the, is the castor oil plant, which I actually just learned this. So castor oil... It's found in like a lot of soaps. I think it's like the base of a lot of soaps. But the I didn't know that. Yeah. So the seed of that though, the castor oil plant seed is where ricin comes from, which is yeah the most toxic, um, it, one of if not the most toxic like compound for us. I think one seed is able to kill a human of one of those plants. So yeah, clearly they are extremely dangerous plants. Yeah. Another one is cassava. You've probably seen this. There's like cassava chips. It's a kind of a replacement for grains. And the the raw cassava plant contains cyanide. So, I mean, it can actually, if you eat it raw, it can actually kill you. Yeah. So, so the, these are the plant toxins that we're talking about. Not just these, but these are kind of the, uh, the extreme of yeah. plant toxins. Yeah. But so they, th they exist to defend themselves. Right. So yeah, there's that extreme that people, everyone agrees, like don't eat these plants, they're going to kill you. Then there's those other plants that don't kill us, but that we just don't eat because our bodies can't process them. And basically just like look out in your yard, like there's trees in your yard, there's flowers, grass, and those aren't going to kill you. You can eat them, but you're probably just going to poop them out because your body can't physically process them. 
Then there's the third tier of plants that we actually can eat um, regularly without noticing any significant um, immediate issues. So basically everything in the produce section at the store, we've determined these are foods that our bodies can digest um, without noticeable issues. Um, so the question is like, do these plants that we consume regularly, do they simply not um, contain any of the chemicals from the previous two groups of plants we mentioned? Um, and, and it's likely not that they don't contain them, it's that they just don't contain as high of levels. And the point that this book, The Carnivore Code, sets out to make is that many of the plants we consume regularly have fairly high levels of toxins that prevent us from essentially living an optimal life. It argues that plants were never meant to be the primary source of food, but rather a, a survival food during periods where there was no access to meat. Yeah, so we want to discuss some of the toxins that are found in plants that we regularly consume. So we're going to go through a few of these, starting with the first one called sulforaphanes. Now, these are found in cruciferous vegetables, so broccoli, cauliflower, Brussels sprouts, cabbage. Uh, it's an isothiocyanate, which is something we discussed back in our eating by color uh, episode. And, you know, the claims around this are, you know, they're, they're cancer fighting. It's a powerful antioxidant, et cetera. And there, there is some, some studies to support that for sure. But on the flip side of that, there is this plant toxin, this defense chemical called sulforaphane that is released when the plant is damaged. So when it's broken, chewed, chopped, it's activated when the compound glucosinolate, uh, which is in the broccoli plant, comes in contact with the enzyme myrosinase. And those two don't come in contact in a regular, living, healthy broccoli plant. It only comes in contact with each other and fo forms sulforaphanes when the plant walls are broken and it's intended to harm its attacker. It's, it's how these plants fight back against being eaten. So one of the claims around this or one of the concerns is that when consumed, uh, these sulforaphanes cause the formation of free radicals. So we've talked about free radicals in the past, but let's revisit this. So a free radical is a molecule with an unpaired electron. And when this happens, the molecule attempts to steal electrons from other molecules, leading to this chain reaction, uh, creating oxidative stress. And this ends up breaking chromosomes, damaging DNA, and leading to a lot of illnesses, cancer, autoimmune conditions. Now, many other things cause free radicals like smoking, radiation, lack of sleep, bad diet, you know, excess alcohol consumption. Well, there are some studies that show sulforaphanes can damage DNA and cause the chromosomes to break. This is called clastogenesis. The first couple studies I found were in vitro studies. So uh, there, there's one from 1996 that looked at the effect of cruciferous plants on human cells in a lab. This is not a live human. And what they, they looked at eight vegetables, Brussels sprouts, uh, white cabbage, green cabbage, cauliflower, you know, some other broccoli, some other cruciferous vegetables. And they found that six of the eight juices did indeed cause chromosomal damage to human cells. And they concluded that the, the findings clearly indicate that the cruciferous vegetables contain DNA damaging constituents. But as with everything, more research is needed to determine if the benefits of the broccoli or, you know, cruciferous vegetables outweigh the risks. There was a, another study in 2011 that showed something 
similar that the, the, these um, compounds in broccoli can indeed damage DNA, but they said they couldn't conclude that the risks of that outweigh the benefits. The problem with these two studies, number one, it's not in live humans, so we don't really know how much damage would this cause to a human, and could the human body uh, you know, quickly repair itself? Could these cause damage on any, you know, um, major level. Another problem with this is that a lot of the vegetables were uncooked or raw, which would lead to a higher sulforaphane content. A lot of it can be cooked out. Supposedly, there's even debate on that. So that's that's the one thing with this. Now, this has been shown in mice, rats, pigs and fruit flies as well, but it has not been tested thoroughly in humans uh, for DNA damage, at least. So it's interesting. I, I, I am interested in this, but whether or not eating broccoli damages our DNA, I think is, is still kind of up for debate. So another potential risk of consuming cruciferous vegetables is its impact on the thyroid gland. So sulforaphanes have been shown to absorb iodine, which is needed for the production of the thyroid hormone. And it's, it's been shown in certain populations that overconsumption of cruciferous vegetables can lead to hypothyroidism, which is an underactive thyroid. So the, the thyroid produces important homo, hormones that control energy, metabolism. It's very important. So having an under, underactive thyroid can definitely uh, decrease your quality of life. There was a study done in 2016 where they looked at consumption of cruciferous vegetables and they found that excess consumption, uh, I think in this case, they were looking at raw kale and oh, they were looking at kale, collards and Brussels sprouts. And they found that excess consumption of these vegetables, which was defined as over a thousand grams a day for several months, can decrease iodine uptake into the thyroid and have a negative impact on the thyroid hormone. And so we should avoid excess consumption of of cruciferous vegetables. Problem with this is a thousand grams of broccoli is a lot of broccoli. Like how much, do you know how much that is? Like, like how much is like a kale salad? Do you know? I'm not sure on the kale. I didn't have any kale, but I looked at a bag of broccoli and okay. five or six florets of broccoli is mm -hmm. like 85 grams. Okay. So that's a, that's a lot. Right. And these were all raw. Okay. So, I mean, who's eating a thousand grams of raw yeah, Brussels sprouts and broccoli and kale, and it and it said uh, every day for several months. That that seems like a lot to me, and like mm -hmm. not really attainable for most people. I don't think that many people are consuming that many raw cruciferous vegetables. So a few other studies show the influence of cruciferous vegetables on thyroid thyroid health, but most of the studies had a huge quantity, more than most people are eating. Is primarily raw, and. One thing that, that a couple of the studies pointed out is that for a, for a healthy person, it may not be an issue, but for somebody with an iodine deficiency, um, it could cause more of an issue because sulforaphanes are, are um, basically eating up your iodine. So for those with an iodine deficiency, it may have more of an impact. So the early data around sulforaphanes is interesting uh, in vitro and in rodents, at least, oh, you know, overconsumption of cruciferous vegetables may lead to thyroid problems for certain people. But I think the evidence is as far from definite on this, uh, or, and at least on the severity impact on human DNA. Personally, I'm not super convinced by this one.
All right, so let's move on to another plant toxin that we want to talk about. And uh, these are called oxalates. So this is found primarily in turmeric powder, spinach, rhubarb. Those are kind of the three vegetables that contain the highest amount of oxalates. Oxalates are oxalic acid plus um, minerals like calcium and magnesium. And it's used, again, as a defense mechanism in plants. Chocolate also contains oxalates. I thought that was worth mentioning. I guess technically not a vegetable, but it kind of falls yeah, in the same category as a plant. Cacao is derived from a plant. Right. So the first claim with the risk of oxalates is um, kidney damage. So there have been a few reported deaths around excess oxalate consumption. Now, this is rare. There are only a few documented cases that I found, but some people have died from oxalate toxicity. There was an interesting one in 2019, actually. There was a 72-year-old woman who was diagnosed with liver cancer and decided to start taking chaga, which contains oxalates. She was taking four to five teaspoons of chaga every day for six months. That's in, in uh, powder form. That's a pretty high dosage of chaga. Before all of this, her kidney were functioning, was functioning as normal, and she ended up dying from kidney failure um, due to oxalate toxicity. So what they found is that excess oxalate consumption can cause severe damage to the kidneys, you know, over time. And there are a few other cases like with this with juice cleanses and, and people consuming only high oxalate foods, but I would say this isn't common. There, most of the studies I found were just documented cases, I guess, not really even studies. And then the the other thing here kind of related to kidney health is kidney stones. So this is actually probably one that has the the most evidence behind it. Although I think more research still needs done here. Kidney stones are primarily made up from calcium oxalate. And studies have shown that an increase in dietary oxalate translates to urinary oxalate secretion. So doctors actually recommend uh, limiting oxalate intake if you've had kidney stones. Yeah, one, one of my buddies actually, like my age, just had a kidney stone a couple months ago. Um, and his doctor told him to basically limit, I think, I, I remember um, coffee was on there, spinach. Um, okay. I don't know what else. It was some like, I mean, it was all like fruits and vegetables. So it's like, it's weird that you have a health condition that your doctor tells you to st stop eating whole foods, but... I mean, it's a, it's a kind of a common recommendation that doctors provide to lower your oxalate intake if you've had a kidney stone before. Right. If you're eating a ton of oxalates, that may develop into kidney stones. I mean, that's what kidney stones are. So this one was interesting. I think there is some weight behind this. Um, and I think like with many things, some appear to be more sensitive to this than others. So if you've had kidney stones, maybe something to think about. All right, so let's move on to another one. You may have heard of this, lectins. We could do a whole episode on this. There's a very comprehensive book, a very popular book written on this. I can't remember what year, recently called The Plant Paradox by Stephen Gundry. And it primarily addressed the problems with lectins and how we're consuming them wrong. And a, a lectin is a type of protein that binds to the surface of our cells. They're mostly found in legumes, so beans, uh, grains, seeds, nuts, and tubers uh, to some extent. So like root vegetables like potatoes, ginger, etc. 
Now, there are various types of lectins. Uh, there's not just a single lectin. There, there are different types in different foods, um, some more toxic than others. Aaron already mentioned one, uh, like ricin from castor beans. Ricin is a lectin. Uh, if you've seen Breaking Bad, you know that this can be very dangerous. Uh, gluten is a type of lectin, which is in a lot of breads. Um, I'm not going to try to pronounce this next one, but PHA, uh, it's in red kidney beans. PNA uh, is found in peanuts. So there's several different types of, of lectins, but you kind of get the gist for where it's found. Beans are a big one, beans and grains. So what's the problem with lectins? Well, some studies have shown that lectins can damage the lining of the small intestine. So I mentioned the lectin PHA, and this has been shown to cause damage to the gut lining by eroding the mucus layer around our gut. And that mucus layer is important because it kind of blocks out e, uh, a lot of the bacteria. So when that mucus layer deterior deteriorates, it becomes less effective at doing its job of blocking out the bacteria. And when the bacteria comes in contact with the gut lining in the body, our body sounds the alarm and an immune response is triggered. Same thing happens with gluten for people with celiac disease. But it has also been shown that this can happen to some extent to some people containing certain lectins. It triggers this immune response in your gut. Now, that doesn't mean you have an autoimmune condition, but you may have a, a uh, an immune reaction to, to lectins. Now, there have been some studies around this. I would say most of the studies have been in vitro or uh, animal studies. And in these cases, the lectin content seems to be a lot higher than what a normal animal or a person would consume. And similar to sulforaphanes, in a lot of these studies, the, the lectins were, were raw, which is very different from a cooked or a fermented lectin, which is the recommended way to consume these kind of foods. However, that, that doesn't mean this can really be dismissed for humans. There does seem to be populations that are more sensitive to lectins than other and do really trigger this inflammatory response uh, and even autoimmune conditions. So there have been studies showing an inflammatory response in the gut to certain lectins for those with autoimmune conditions. Um, like, see, like I said, celiac disease is one, um, but it seems to exist in other autoimmune conditions as well, like lupus, MS, Crohn's. People with autoimmune conditions tend to do very well on a low lectin diet. So Stephen Gundry, I just mentioned him. He was the author of The Plant Paradox. He did a study with 102 patients with autoimmune conditions, and they had a variety of autoimmune conditions, rheumatoid arthritis, lupus, Crohn's, colitis, and a few others. Before the study, all of them had biomarkers of gut inflammation, and he enrolled them in a, a elimination diet, removing dietary lectins consisting of all grains, pseudo grains, beans and legumes, peanuts, cashews. Uh, he also eliminated nightshades, squashes, and uh, casein A1 milk products. Also worth noting that they were also supplementing with probiotics and pre prebiotics during this study. But after nine months, 95 of the 102 patients achieved, achieved complete resolution of autoimmune markers and inflammatory markers. Seven of the 102 patients all had reduced markers, but incomplete resolution. So they got better, but not completely better. And so from this, they concluded that a lectin limited diet supplemented with pro and prebiotics oh, and polyphenols are capable of curing or putting into remission most autoimmune diseases. Now, that's a pretty bold claim, um, but I've heard that from other people. My my wife, uh, you know, I've mentioned on here before the Walls Protocol, 
Uh, lectins are, are not a part of the walls protocol. So she doesn't really eat beans or grains. You know, I mean, most of the, those things with a lot of lectins in it, she avoids, and that seems to help her as well. So people with autoimmune conditions typically do well by removing lectins. Now, does that mean everybody needs to remove lectins? Uh, I don't know. There's kind of this theory that, I mean, we've talked about in the past, chronic illnesses and autoimmune conditions are typically a result of chronic inflammation. So if you're constantly eating things that inflame you, that may lead to problems. And like, and when I say inflammation, I mean like you're triggering an immune system response in the gut. So for those with an autoimmune condition, I think it's, it's good to be careful probably of lectins. Like I said, my wife avoid, avoids lectins. We actually were plant-based for um, year, year and a half maybe. And we were eating a lot of rice and beans. Like that was dinner most nights. So tons of beans. Uh, she was also eating, I think she had cut out the gluten, but we were still eating grains. You know, we would have gluten-free bread a lot. Do you remember how how you felt both just like energy wise and like did you have any stomach issues then like on that on that plant-based diet versus what you typically do now i mean i don't remember like energy wise feeling terrible but i felt i mean bloated after every meal okay different like uh different than the bloating you'd feel after eating like a high carb food like uh, if you were to eat like sweet potatoes well i guess sweet potatoes are kind of in this group but something like, did you pinpoint, I guess, lectin specifically, those types of food would cause more of a inflammatory response or not quite? I don't know. I couldn't, I couldn't really tell. I mean, really anytime I eat, yeah, it's, it's hard to identify whether or not it was just lectins. Like anytime I, like I've mentioned before, when I like eat, eat a high carb, a lot of bread mm -hmm. meal, I typically feel bloated. Okay. Versus yeah. when I'm eating a high protein, like high fat meal. So so yeah, I don't know. I mean, she felt better switching. I'm sure it was not just that. It was a lot of things that we, right. we switched up. Yeah. But um, it just thought that was interesting that a lot of people with autoimmune conditions have um, noticed a benefit. And look, a good doctor can test you for lectin sensitivity. Um, they basically like look to see if you have antibodies that are produced as a result of eating lectins. That means your immune system is acting up after you eat lectins. So I think more research needs to be done here to see if everyone needs to avoid lectins. Um, I think... I think at this point, it seems to be best to avoid for those who may be sensitive, especially with autoimmune conditions. Now, whether or not lectin consumption can lead to autoimmunity, that's up for debate. Stephen Gundry would say yes. I don't really know. Um, we may do a full episode on this at some point. But like I said, for me, I don't eat lectins primarily due to Katie's diet. Um, and, and avoiding them typically draws me towards a more nutrient dense food. So is there any benefit? I know like I've heard with like beans, um, garbanzo beans, really any type of bean or legume to like let it soak overnight or like or cook it really well beforehand. Like don't eat, eat them raw. So does that uh, does that help rec remove the, the lectin content? Yeah. Again, there's like debate on this, but most people uh, would agree that removing or like fermenting or soaking or cooking really helps uh, reducing the the harmful effects of lectin. Okay. Like beans, I think most people cook beans. If you ferment the beans, that's even a better way to reduce the lectin content. But there are some foods that people eat that contain lectins that aren't often cooked. Like tomatoes, um, peanuts contain lectins, uh, garlic, well, I guess most people cook garlic, but like mushrooms, carrots, 
zucchini, you know, things that there are vegetables that contain lectins that people hardly cook. So I guess, yeah, fermentation seems to be much better than cooking in terms of reducing uh, the lectins. But I don't know. I think it kind of depends on the person here. All right. And then one last thing I'm going to mention is phytic acid. So this is also found in, in many plants, uh, lentils, legumes, almonds, walnuts, spinach, Swiss chard. And the thing about phytic acid is that it reduces our body's ability to absorb zinc, iron, magnesium, and selenium. So like a lot of minerals um, from foods that contain phytic acid. So let's take spinach, for instance, people eat this for iron and magnesium. Well, spinach is pretty high in phytic acid. So you're really not getting any iron when you're eating spinach, the phytic acid significantly reduces your body's ability to absorb that mineral. Um, same with most beans. Uh, there are a couple interesting studies that showed how introducing beans into a diet reduced the absorption of zinc. There was another study where they looked at uh, spinach consumption and, and found that people that consumed high doses of spinach weren't as effective at absorbing magnesium. Um, same thing with calcium. Uh, they looked at that with raw versus cooked. So this is also why studies have shown that those on a plant-based diet typically have lower levels of minerals like iron, zinc, and calcium. Uh, and not always, but I think you just need to be intentional if you're on a plant-based diet about, about how you're getting those. Because if you're getting those from things that are also high in phytic acid, it's unlikely that you're actually getting mineral absorption from those. I would say that's that's um, not a phytic acid is not something that is like harming us. It's just you need to be careful about what you're consuming it with and how you're balancing your other nutrients to make sure that it's not reducing the bioavailability of something that you need. All right, so I've done enough rambling on uh, these plant toxins. Now let's talk about what's typically on the plant, plant pesticides. All right, so whenever you think of plant pesticides, you probably think of, of like Roundup which is glyphosate, which is something that we as humans add to the plant to prevent, you know, critters from attacking it. But in addition to the, the pesticides that we add to the plants, plants actually create their own type of pesticide to prevent themselves from getting eaten with a, a, a compound called phytoalexin. And in the book, they make the, the argument that these plant produced pesticides are much more harmful than synthetic pesticides that humans add to the plant. And that's mainly because that we end up eating much more of the pesticides that the plant creates as opposed to the, the stuff that we add. Because when we spray pesticides on a plant, um, by the time it, it gets to the, the produce section of the store, most of it's washed away. Um, there is still some residual, but the pesticides that the plant creates, is it's in the plant, so it stays there. And in the book, he states that 99.99% of the pesticides we consume is from the phytoalexins or, or the plant-produced pesticides. And he re referenced a scientific article written on this topic that concluded that on average, Americans consume 1.5 grams of plant-produced pesticides a day, which is 10,000 times higher than the amount of synthetic pesticides we consume. I'm not going to get into the studies of what this does for us, but overall there's been kind of some linking to these pesticides causing DNA damage. 
Um, so that's something else to be aware of when when consuming excess plants. Another plant compound I want to briefly touch on here is likely one you've heard before, and it's one we've actually talked about before, and that's polyphenols. And the most common polyphenols you've probably heard of are things like flavonoids, resveratrol, and curcumin. And polyphenols actually tie directly to plant pesticides that we just talked about because those phytoalexins are actually in the polyphenol group. So polyphenols have two unique roles in the world of plants. Their first role is as phytoalexins to ward off predators, and their second is as plant pigments or, or coloring. And one of the main arguments against polyphenols are that their compounds are, are only found in the plant kingdom. They can't be found anywhere in, in animals, anywhere in humans. So he, he asked the question, why would, why would we benefit by putting this foreign compound in our body when it's, it's not natural for humans or animals to ingest it? He's essentially saying that polyphenols are, are made by plants and for plants, and there isn't a, a place for them in the human species. These are all things that we've associated as beneficial compounds. But he, he argues that most of the studies around improving health from consuming polyphenol-rich foods are either based upon epidemiological studies, which to remind you guys is basically looking at statistics from a large group of people. And these can be very challenging when it comes to uh, nutrition studies because there, there's no way to control for other things that people are eating. So one group of people might be eating a lot of polyphenol-rich foods, but if they're eating those foods, they're mo more likely living a healthier lifestyle, whereas people who are, aren't eating veggies are more likely living a, a less healthy lifestyle. So just looking at epidemiological studies when it comes to nutrition is very challenging. So he's arguing that most of the studies that show benefits from polyphenols are only epidemiological or studies done in test tubes or in animals, which these don't always translate over to humans. And in this case, they, it doesn't translate over to humans. Um, he says that there have been a few interventional studies done, which is where they take a, a group of humans and they control for variables, which gets you to a much more accurate picture of what's driving things. And the outcome of most of these actual human trials don't show any additional benefits um, overeating polyphenol-rich foods. So again, I don't want to go too deep on plant pesticides and polyphenols. These he, he just shows a few studies here, a few interventional studies done on humans that don't show benefits from eating a, a polyphenol-rich diet. So uh, I know we've covered a lot here with the different uh, plant compounds. Uh, basically, the, the summary here is that some seem to be uh, harmful to us. Others don't seem to be as beneficial as we thought they were. Now, um, again, this is what the book is stating. We don't agree with everything 100%. I think for me personally, the lectins is one that I've heard a, a lot about before even reading this book. And that seems to be kind of the, I don't know, I, I I, I, I guess I sided with that one the most when reading the book. I think there's a lot of evidence for lectins being kind of harmful. So that's one that stood out to me. I don't know. You you kind of, Andy, shared some of the evidence around the other ones that probably wasn't as strong. But yeah, I, I, I mean, I would like it's interesting to me, like, but most of the I feel like other plant toxins we're dealing with, you know, either individual cases, not interventional studies or 
like in vitro or animals, which is fine. Like that's, that's good. That's a good start, but I'd like to see this play out more. And in, in terms of polyphenols, it, the, the interventional studies here are interesting. Like resveratrol is a polyphenol and it's something I was taking because I heard that it's good for longevity, but new info. And like that was initially based on, uh, mice studies or rat study rodent, rodent trials essentially. Mm -hmm. But once they actually started doing human trials, it turns out that resveratrol was like not really good for humans. Yeah. And, and that was an interventional study. That's a, that's a high quality, you know, piece of evidence. So Polyphenols are interesting. I, I, I'm interested by the interventional studies here, but I, I kind of I'm going to keep an eye on this, I guess. Yeah, hopefully over the years we'll we'll get more data on it. But um, I don't know for you. I, we'll probably get into this more in the next episode. But are you going to change your any habits in terms of veggie and fruit intake based upon what you've read here? Yes and no. So I, yeah, we can talk about this in the next episode, but I, I will, I'm more interested in this carnivore diet based on the nutrient density of animal mm. products okay. as opposed to the toxicity of vegetables. Yeah. And so that's actually a good segue into the benefits of meat. You know, we don't, we don't want to make this meat propaganda hour, which I'm sure these last episode, this one and the next one probably feel like, but just <laughs> hang with us and we'll, we'll get through it. So I'm not going to really get into the science of bioavailability. I would love to do a full episode on looking at the bioavailability of plants versus animals. We're basically just going to go through some of the vitamins and minerals that are found in meat versus plants. So we're just going to go through, uh, I'm just going to run through a list of some vitamins and minerals that are found uh, in high quantities in meat. So creatine, choline, carnitine. So I'm not going to, I'm not going to go through what each of these do. I mean, we could do honestly a full episode on each of these, uh, carnosine, uh, vitamin B12. That's probably one that most people are familiar with. It is high in animal foods, especially uh, organ meats like liver and kidney. It's not naturally produced in plants. Uh, vitamin A, vitamin K, those are both fat soluble vitamins, which uh, you, you need fat in order to be able to absorb it and use it. So it's difficult to get that those on a, a plant-based diet. Uh, but you, I mean, you can have plant-based fats. Anyway, uh, protein, obviously everyone knows the best way to measure protein is through the, something called the digestible indispensable amino acid score. Again, I'd like to do a full episode on this, but as you would expect, beef, eggs, pork, and fish are, are highly bioavailable. Uh, or have a high are a highly bioavailable source of protein. Yeah, he has a graph in, in the book kind of comparing beef, egg, pork and fish to basically any other plant. And they're almost um, I mean, almost two times more bioavailable in terms of just protein. So you just have to right. you have to eat. So I mean, the next the next the highest some of the highest plant proteins are like peas, kidney beans, rice, oats. I mean, and you have to eat, you just have to eat such a massive amount of those to get the protein you'd get in, uh, in a steak or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. And so the argument is in order to get the protein that you would need, you would need to consume a lot of these vegetables like rice. Let's take rice. You would have to eat a lot of rice to get what you could get from beef, meaning you'd have to consume a lot of lectins with kidney beans. You'd have to consume a lot of well yeah i guess that would be lectins as well 
Um, but that's kind of that's kind of the idea, the theory behind it is these are more bioavailable from animal products, and you avoid eating high doses of veggies, which may lead to certain uh, toxicities. But anyway, we'll we'll do a, a separate episode on bioavailability at some point. And then omega threes are are big in animal products. And so the thing with all of these is mostly found in animal products and highly bioavailable compared to plants. So this is why it's important to eat uh, nose to tail as well, because you're not going to get all of these vitamins in just muscle meat. As Aaron mentioned earlier, like eating organs, organs are very rich in B vitamins. This is why this is the argument really for and really why I'm convinced by or intrigued, I should say by carnivore is because it is so nutrient dense. Like a lot of people ask, well, where do you, like my mom, she asked like, where are you getting your nutrients from? It's like, I'm getting it from my food. I'm like eating probably the most nutrient dense foods on the planet. Yeah. I mean, if you just look and compare gram by gram, how much nutrients are in organ meats versus plants, it is, it is insane. Um, how much higher organ meats have. So like, he shows in the book the a comparison of like blueberry and kale, which are, you know, superfoods in in the plant world, and he compares it to to liver, which we've talked about liver in our stories before as being one of probably the most nutrient dense food on the planet. But he lists right. a ton of vitamins and minerals and compares it to um, among other things, but blueberry, kale, and liver. I'll just name a, I'll just go through a, a few of the I guess highlights here, but like vitamin A, blueberry and kale have have none. Beef liver has 4,968 micrograms. Um, let's go some of the, so blueberries are, are high in vitamin C comparatively. Um, they have 9.7 micrograms. Liver's got 25. Um, another high one for blueberries is potassium. They have 777. I, I think this is milligrams. I'm saying micro milligrams. Beef liver has 313. Choline, blueberries has six milligrams. Beef liver has 333. I mean, it's just like, it doesn't even pale in comparison to how how much minerals and vitamins are packed into such a small piece of meat. Right, yeah. That's that's what's interesting to me about it. And I do want to go over, I am not saying that this is evidence. I just thought this little study was interesting that I came across. It looked at brain activity in vegetarians versus meat eaters. So what they did, these researchers took a group of vegetarians and a group of meat eaters, and they looked at their facial expression and kind of their subjective desires to eat. And then they also looked at their brain activity. They measured uh, something called event-related potentials, ERPs. And this basically shows the brain responding positively to something of desire, like a piece of art a puppy, an attractive person. What they found is at the subjective level, vegetarians showed an aversion to meat, as you would expect. But at the neural level, they responded in the same way as the meat eaters. So meaning their neural motivational feeling towards eating meat were the same. So deep down, they want it. (laughs) (laughs) That's what he says. He says like it shows our primal desire but I would say you could, I'd, I'd say that goes both ways too, though. Um, cause I mean, when I was, when we were on carnivore, all I, all I wanted was a nice juicy peach. 
Like I wanted it so bad, even yeah. even after 30 days and being adapted to it, I wanted a peach so bad. I I had this craving for for fruit and veggies. So yeah, I think and I'm sure goes, if if they looked at your brain activity, they would have come to the same conclusion. You want that peach? Yeah, it's it's not really evidence. I just thought yeah. it was funny. No, it is interesting. I, I don't know. I, I I think really we're just meant to eat everything. You know, whole foods. Just eat eat meat. Eat whole foods meat. Whole foods, plants, and veggies. I think. Yeah. I don't know. We'll get we'll get into our more our personal opinion in the next episode. So, um, but yeah, basically high level meat's good for you. <laughs> it's uh it, very nutrient dense. I mean, the the fact that it's nutrient dense is not that's not something that's like up for debate. I mean, you can just look at the the side by side comparison, and it is insanely more. You get insanely more vitamins and minerals in such a small portion than you would ever find in a variety of fruits and veggies. I mean, you could you could put together a dozen fruits, a dozen veggies in a blender and drink that. And even then, you're not going to get as much nutrient diversity or density that you could get in a in a plate of various organ meats. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So my thoughts after all this, kind of after everything, all, all the research we've done and Again, we just we just scratched the surface here. I mean, there is so much to cover, so much that we left out. So many more studies we could have gone into, but we, we you know, we're already an hour in here, um, and we're we're just trying to keep it high level. But here are my my thoughts on it. I'm I'm more intrigued, like I said earlier, I'm more intrigued by the idea of the carnivore diet due to the nutrient density of animal products as opposed to the you know quote unquote toxicity of vegetables. Like I can see how for some people removing sulforaphanes, oxalates, lectins, those plant toxins could be helpful, like especially for those with autoimmune conditions. And those are seem to be the people that respond best on a carnivore diet. But I'm not really convinced that there is enough evidence at this point to recommend a change that everybody needs to <laughs> eliminate vegetables from their diet. You know, I'm, I'm definitely less skeptical of carnivore now having actually researched and experimented with it, but I wouldn't go around saying that everybody needs to do it. I do think that most people on the standard American diet would vastly benefit from it. When I say standard American diet, I mean people that just eat whatever they want. They eat crap, um, sugar, carbs, you know, anything in the frozen section at the grocery store. Um, I think anybody going, switching to this from that would greatly benefit because they're getting so much more nutrients than they used to. And they're eliminating it's, you know, it's an elimination and diet. You're taking out so much of those other things. Um, and then, you know, perhaps those with autoimmune conditions, people with autoimmune conditions, even if you don't have, um, like celiac disease typically have more of an inflammatory response to certain foods they are more sensitive. Like, I mean, case in point, Katie, I, this is anecdotal. And again, we, she made a lot of changes, but like when she was, um, plant-based, you know, she had, after a year, she had her MRI and she had like four or five new lesions. We went to this walls protocol uh, and after a year, no new lesions, very anecdotal. But anyway, um, she seemed to benefit from cutting out like rice and beans and grains. I would like to see more longer term research on this stuff. Uh, cause I think it's interesting. You know, I don't think it's like total hogwash or, or garbage or anything. There's some evidence for some of this stuff, but interested i'm interested to see more long-term evidence on it yeah i think we're going to see a lot more with i mean it's become so much more popular and you know like you said i think they'll probably by the time this is out an episode on rogan's going to be out all about this um so billions of people there are going to hear about this tons of people are going to start trying it 
there's just going to be a lot more interest in this diet. So I'm interested to see 10 years from now kind of how this compares to other diets. Yeah. Yeah. When we start seeing like interventional long-term trials, because there yeah. hasn't been, you know, a, a five-year, honestly, five years still short-term in the in the long run, but there hasn't been a, you know, a five, 10-year study on people who are just eating meat, you know, and, and comparing that to a population not on carnivore, just eating a normal diet. Mm -hmm. We don't have that yet, but I think we will. Yeah. And I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing it. Yeah. All right. So to wrap up here, you know, this episode is primarily, primarily looking at the argument for a carnivore diet. Um, now in our episode next week, we are going to be discussing our personal opinions on it more so, and our experience with doing this for 30 days. I know I learned a, a lot of, uh, uh, there's a lot of good and ch bad changes that happened in this, in these 30 days. So, um, I'm excited to, to share this. I, I did. Did you do end up doing before and after pictures? Yeah, I did, but I didn't really notice a difference. Okay. I, I noticed like a pretty big difference, not big for 30 days, like more okay. than I thought. So we'll share those, um, talk through those, but, um, yeah, I hope you guys enjoy this one. Um, if you guys would, uh, check out the, show on your apple podcast app give us a rating and review that would be awesome super helpful for us also we opened up a, a comment section on our website under each episode there's a little place to comment so most people kind of just send us like talking points or questions in our dms on instagram um if you have questions or comments uh do that on the comment section there as opposed to instagram yeah, because then, then everybody else can kind of see, you know, sometimes we get some of the same questions, which, you know, we, we like interacting with people on Instagram right. for sure. Um, but then it, I don't know. I think it'd be cool to kind of have a section where people can chat yeah, back and forth. And yeah, because questions people, other people probably have too. So right. other people can go read that, read our response, and it's a, it's a good resource for people. So, uh, yeah, we will be back next week with our 30-day experience of eating only meat. Thanks, everyone.